Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter, or the Passover. And we are going to be celebrating the death and resurrection of our Savior. And it's very easy for us in the busyness of life to kind of carry on with our run-of-the-mill stuff and all the things that are going on and, and oh, today's Easter and thanks for the eggs and yes, thanks Jesus that you died and have it be sort of a blip on the radar while we carry on with our lives again. And so I thought for me, what I'd really like to do this year is invite you all along together on a journey where we prepare our hearts for Easter where we actually give it due consideration and attention. Uh, You know, Christmas, when our Savior came, is a wonderful time, and it's good that we give that attention and we commemorate and celebrate the greatness of God's love, that He would come down to be with us. But yet Easter is the ultimate celebration for the Christian. Not just that my sins were born by Jesus and He died for me, but that He rose again victorious. And... You know, we're blessed that we look at Easter from this side of the cross. Our perspective is always one of hindsight, where we see what Jesus has done and we praise Him and we commemorate the occasion from the blessed position that we now find ourselves in. But as we lead up to Easter, as we prepare our hearts for this very special occasion within our Christian faith, I want to draw your attention to just some of the ways that Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for what was to come. And, you know, as I said, we look upon what happened with hindsight. They were with Jesus. These are the ones who Jesus came, and because of who he was and the authority and anointing that was on his life, called them, and they responded and said, we will follow. And Jesus said, drop what you're doing, leave what you're doing, come follow me. And that's what they did. And in essence, that is the, the very definition of what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is simply to be one who follows Jesus. Now, we've got a very different definition of what that means these days because we follow a lot of people on Facebook and we follow a lot of people on Twitter and really what that means is okay we're interested in what they say about this thing we're interested in their opinion about something but following Jesus means a lot more than just being interested in his opinion on something it means that I am willing to embrace his opinion and make it my own which means I am willing to depart from every opinion that I hold in order to make every opinion that I have lined up with his I want to talk today about an occasion where Jesus is beginning to talk to his disciples about what's about to happen. And he's trying to position their hearts. And in so doing, I trust that he will help us position our hearts as well this morning. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. If you have your own Bible, great, that'll be good, because we're going to read a a fair chunk of Scripture, so it's nice that we can follow along together. I am going to be reading reading from the New King James. It will be up on the screens for those of you who... Uh, who don't have your Bibles here. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read from verse 13. And this is what it says. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Jesus understood who he was. He said, I am the Son of Man. I know who I am. But he asks the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And so they said, Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. So in other words, there wasn't real general consensus as to who this rabbi was that was going around making these outlandish claims doing these incredible, miraculous things. Who are people saying that I am? And they're trying to peg who Jesus is. Is this the spirit of Elijah, as was prophesied by Malachi? Is this, you know, just another one of uh, the reincarnation of an old prophet? But then Jesus asks the ultimate question. He says, who do you say that I am? In other words, who am I to you? And we know that this is the question all of us must answer. But Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And we know that Jesus commended him. He answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So in other words, the real depth, when Peter spoke, Jesus recognized that this was more than just information. Jesus could see whether he saw it in his eyes or whether he recognized the faith in Peter's heart, whether he discerned that revelation knowledge had, had truly set in. He looked at Peter and he said, what you have just said is true, but it's not just true information. I can see that what you have said is, is deeper than that. It's, it's, it's brought your entire life into alignment, your entire expectation that you have recognized that I am not just some prophet, I am not just Elijah or, or one of the others, but I am Yeshua HaMashiach, the, 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 the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the sent one, the prophesied one. And this is not just a good idea that you've had, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. It's gone beyond just here, head knowledge, but there's something in his heart that he could recognize was there. And Jesus goes on to say, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What rock? The rock of the revelation of Christ as the Messiah. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then Jesus goes on to say this, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now what is the kingdom of heaven? We often talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They are synonymous terms for the same thing. It's the realm and the influence of God's kingdom. In Matthew, he's writing to a more Jewish audience, and they will recognize the terminology of the kingdom of heaven, and that's why he calls it that. But the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are one and the same. And Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, Jesus' explanation of what this revelation means goes far beyond just forgiveness and salvation. Do you see that? He didn't just say, I mean, put it this way, when you look at Jesus' ministry, there's many times where he says, your sins are forgiven, be healed and go your way. Your sins are forgiven. That was one of the big gripes that the Pharisees had with him, is who is this man that thinks he can forgive sins? But in this instance, when he's talking about the revelation of the Christ, and when he's talking about what that means, it's, forgiveness is included, but it means so much more, because he goes on to say, to talk about the authority that comes with it. 
You see, he's, not, he's trying to address and redirect the expectations of those disciples. He's saying to them, there is a new kingdom about to break which supersedes the kingdoms of this world. Or let me put it to you this way. There's a new authority coming into place which is above and beyond what men say that I am. Do you get that, what Jesus is doing here? He says, who do men say that I am? And then based on the revelation that Peter has, he says, yes, now what's going to happen and what's going to break loose in your hearts and in your lives goes beyond what anybody can say that I am. Unless they recognize Peter, the same thing that you have recognized, that there is a new kingdom of power and authority that is coming into existence, that is coming into play. Verse 20, then he commanded his disciples that no one should tell, or that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So there's this wonderful revelation, and then Jesus says, shh, it's just between us. Don't tell anybody yet. It's our secret. Why? Because Jesus was not yet ready. There are still some things that had to play themselves out. His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and he speaks about it. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So from that time, from that point, when they began to recognize that he was the Messiah, now Jesus could start connecting all the prophetic dots, all the words that had been spoken over him, over the Messiah, and to say, these things all need to be fulfilled because I am he, I am that one. And he would have to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. You see, Jesus is preparing his disciples here. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Why? Peter loved Jesus. Peter left everything to follow Jesus. And he, he's the one who recognizes who he really is. And then Jesus says, now, now in light of that, this is what's going to have to play itself out. And even before the night of betrayal, even before the cross, Peter's whole world begins to fall apart. Jesus responds to Peter and he says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but you are mindful of the things of men. You're trying to reason from a human point of view, divine things. So you have this incredible revelation but now you're not reasoning from that place anymore. You're back into human logic. You're back into thinking what men say, what you feel. And you need to, and so he says, that kind of thinking is an affront to me. It's almost like it's a temptation to me. Don't speak those things. Get behind me. And here begins the outline of the real difference between the ways of men and their kingdoms, and how the kingdoms of this world work, versus the ways of God and His kingdom. And Jesus says to His disciples in verse 24, If anyone desires to come after Me... Now, they're already coming after Him, right? They're already His disciples. But He's beginning to lay out what this kingdom mantra, the mandate of the kingdom, is going to look like. If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow Me. You know, I've got two little girls. The one is six, the one is nine. I know that if I was to ask one of them, if you were to become queen tomorrow, just queen of everything, just queen, the queen, 
What would you do? What do you think my kids would say? What would your, what would your kids say? Never mind your kids. What would you say? If you were made monarch tomorrow, what would you do? What decrees would you issue? Let's, let's be honest. First thing would probably be to order some things for their pleasure. I'd make every night pudding night. We have pudding night once a house in our week. I'm sure if they were in charge, every night would be pudding night. And sweets, uh, we would probably end up living at Granny's house because Granny has tubs of sweets that we can eat from when we go and visit Granny. So we'd all go and live with Granny and every night would be pudding night. And then we'd probably start telling other people what we think they should do, right? Because you must do that and that's the right thing to do. And you must stop doing that. And you must because I'm the queen, I'm the king. I'm in charge now. And that really is the way that the kingdoms of this world work, isn't it? The political systems, the hierarchical structures, whether in government, whether in monarchies or kingdoms, whether in workplace environments, the attitude is, I want to get to the top so that I can be the one who's in charge. I'm the one who's calling the shots. I'm the one who's got all the power. This is clearly also the way the disciples thought, but this is not the way that Jesus worked, and this was the opposite of the way his kingdom works, and it really is the opposite of the example that he set for us. Why do I say that? I say that because Jesus did not come and live this life so that he could get, climb some kind of social ladder to get to the place of prominence. The example that Jesus set is that he came from ultimate prominence to lay himself down and to serve you and I. Read about it. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. It says this way. That Jesus, although he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, his status. He could have sat up there and just, you know what, I'm comfortable. I'm okay. Let them sort themselves out. Send them some money, it'll help. He came down. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, in other words, because of this, as a result of what Jesus did, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in, he in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is the attitude of Jesus, right? This is the way His kingdom works, this new kingdom that He's bringing in. And we go back to Matthew. He continues to drive the point. Verse 25, He says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Isn't that such a sobering thought? The Bible, David writes and he says, you know, we are like the plants of the field. We're like grass. We come up and we have our day in the sun and then the, the dry wind blows and we shrivel up and die and even our place remembers us no more. We're here for a fleeting moment and then we go. And there we off, off we go. But yet while we're here, we seem to, to think we can, we can, it's all about us, our pleasure, our will, our desire, our glory. And Jesus says here, you know, if that's the way you're going to live, 
All of that stuff that you're going to attain, that pleasure, that glory, all of it, you're going you're to get it, sure, you can have it all, but you're going to lose it all. When your fleeting moment is done, when the dry wind has blown over you, all of that stays behind, all of that evaporates once again. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. People come and people go. But Jesus says there is something that endures forever. He says, well, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Another way of asking that question is, what is the price that you, are, that you will pay for getting everything you want? What is the price that you pay for getting everything you want? Twenty-seven. For the Son of Man will come in glory, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Man, the Son of Man, coming again in his kingdom. Folks, the cross, that one. Or oh, that one, I lost it for a moment. I took my eyes off the cross. The cross is the ultimate symbol of this new kingdom. It is the methodology of the kingdom of God. It is established and expressed through personal sacrifice. That's what the cross is all about. It's the place of death. And Jesus made it clear to us that self-denial and cross-bearing was what it meant to follow him. But I think we need to remember that Jesus, when he stripped himself of glory and came down, he didn't do so begrudgingly. He didn't do so of necessity. But he did so with a deep joy in his heart, knowing, motivated, coming from the fountain of great love, willing to pay whatever price was necessary, his life for you and for me because of the joy that was set before him the joy of intimacy with Him, the joy of love finding its full expression, the joy of life eternal and eternity with Him, us with Him and Him with us. The kingdom of God finds its expression not in how we can get others to do what we want to do, not in how Jesus came down so that we could be His subjects. No, because He has made us His friends. And Father has made us not His slaves, but His sons and His daughters. The kingdom of God finds its expression not in getting people to do what we want them to do, but in allowing God to do what He desires to do in us and through us. You see, the kingdom of God always begins in here, not out there, in here. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 12 to 13, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by, to, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, of the body, you will live. And so we see the stark contrast that as I die to myself, to my desires, to my will and my opinion, as I embrace my own cross and taste the death of that, the suffering associated with that, I also get to taste and experience true life, eternal life, the life of Jesus working in and working through me. John 12, 25 to 26 says it this way. The person who loves his life, I'm reading from the Passion Translation, the person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss. 
Isn't that a sobering reminder, folks? The person who loves his life and seeks to pamper himself will miss true life, but the one who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. If you want to be my disciple, follow me and you will go where I am going. Where is it that Jesus was going? He was going to the cross. Well, truth be told, he was going to glory. And he brings us up into glory too. But the path to glory, the avenue to glory, the doorway to glory is the cross. Because no flesh can glory in his presence. No flesh can glory in his presence. No flesh can ever say, I did this. I earned this. Look at my life. I did it. I'm worthy of it. No flesh can glory in his presence. He gets all the glory. Not only did he create the flesh, he created it all, but he redeemed it all by his own blood. He says, if you truly follow me as my disciple, in other words, you follow my example, the Father will shower his favor upon your life. Let me give you a couple more scriptures. Paul again writes the same message to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now let's just pause for a moment. Who is Paul talking about here? Paul is talking about the Pharisee of Pharisees. The, in the world's eyes, in the world's esteem, a very influential man. He called himself faultless concerning the law, a zealous Pharisee, persecuting the church, uh, it's not in this portion of Scripture, but I'm talking to you about Paul and, and, and everything that he could claim, a highly educated man, an influential man, a powerful man, of high esteem. He says, that man, with all his good, and in another place he talks about, oh, wretched man that I am. And that man, the high, the low, the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole thing, I have been crucified with Christ so that it's no longer any of those parts of me that live anymore. But now there is one man who lives in me, and that is Christ. Christ now lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the amazing thing is this. Jesus not only gave himself for you and me, he continually gives himself to you and me. And so we get to partake of this incredible, wonderful life. But the only way we get to do it is through the cross. Through the cross. The cross is always a place of pain. It's intended to be. It's a place of suffering. It's a place of struggle. You see, your will, just like you, longs to continue breathing. Your will longs to stay alive. Your will longs to have its way, and it fights, and is willing to fight vehemently for that. You how... My will doesn't die easily. I don't know anybody whose will dies easily. Nobody's will just lies down and goes, okay. And that is why we can't just take our will to the corner and leave it there. We need to take our will to the cross. Because it's not just something we can put on the altar. You don't just put the animal on the altar and walk away. What happened? 
Your animal will follow you out. You see, when you put the animal on the altar, you've got to shed its blood. Sacrifice needs to be made. Something has to give. Something has got to die. And God, in His infinite wisdom, He gives us this truth without holding a knife to our backs, without holding a gun to our heads. You see, God is not trying to take it from us. Jesus didn't have His life taken from Him. <laughs> Jesus laid down His life for you and for me. And that is why the only way we can come into intimate relationship with Him is not by saying, okay, take it, because God won't. It's by walking willingly up to our own cross and saying, Lord, here I am. I lay it down. I give it up. I give it to you. It amazes and astounds me that all the power in creation, all the Godhead himself, as powerful as he could be, who with a hiccup could evaporate all of us, allows us and gives us grace and gives us freedom to come to him. He came to us and he showers us with his love, and yet he freely waits for us to forsake our ways and come to him. Listen to the wisdom in James chapter 3, verses, 18 to 19, uh, verses 13 to 18. James 3, 13 to 18. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. What is meekness? Meekness is to be teachable. What is wisdom? Wisdom is to know how to assimilate and apply knowledge. And perhaps what he's saying there, the meekness of wisdom is to know that wisdom is inexhaustible. You, none of us knows everything. None of us knows it all. So don't walk around as if you think you got it all together. The meekness of wisdom says that I walk in the wisdom that I have, knowing that the wisdom I have is not all the wisdom that there is. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly and sensual and demonic. Did you get that? Where I want what you want, and I'm, I'm bitter because I don't have what you want or what Joe Soap has or what somebody else has, or where I am seeking my own glory, my own comfort, my own things. He says, confusion and every evil thing are there. Verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Folks, look at me for a second. We are living in a very confused, very evil time. People are deeply confused, deeply deceived, and have given themselves over to wicked and evil agendas and things. Deep confusion. People are confused even about basic points of morality, about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. What is justice and how does that look? People are very confused. People are confused about their very identities. Basic, simple things that have been there and established and, I dare say, taken for granted for centuries. We're now confused about them. 
Why is that? Because where envy and self-seeking exist, this is the ethos of the world we're living in, folks. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, spotless, pure. Jesus was pure and spotless. Then peaceable. In other words, it's not trying to prove a point. It's not trying to be right. It's not trying to make you do what it wants to do, but it wants to make peace with you. Peaceable. Gentle. Not forceful. Not, ah, well, if you don't say what I'm going to say, we're just going to cancel you. We're going to put you out. No, it's gentle. Gentle. Willing to yield. Did you get that? The wisdom that comes from God is willing to yield. What does that mean? God's, in all His power, in all His mercy, in all His grace, in all His omnipotence, is willing to yield to you for what you want. That you can have what you want. You can have whatever you want. And God will let you have it. It's full of mercy and good fruits. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, once again, Jesus clearly displaying this principle in the washing of his disciples' feet, John chapter 13. At a moment where the one who's about to betray him is there, he washes his feet. He's making peace amongst them as they're fighting and jockeying for position. And he ultimately lays down his life to be the peacemaker. And I want to say to you today, as we approach the commemoration of, of Easter weekend... Good Friday, when we commemorate and remember the Lord's death, and Celebration Sunday, hallelujah for Celebration Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good for us to take stock. And in the same way that Jesus was trying to prepare the hearts of the disciples for this event, let us prepare our hearts. Let us look afresh at our intentions and our motives and our actions. As we look at the cross... We tend to see Jesus crucified there and, he's, and, and we thank Him for all that He has done for us. But maybe in this week, as we look at the cross, we should remember the fact that Jesus said if we want to follow Him, that we're going to have to take up ours. That the way to life is through the death. That the way to ha for Him to have His way in my life is for me to put my way constantly to death, that he may glory, that he may accomplish for his glory, for his, for the Father's satisfaction, his will in and through me. Now, for those of us who have tasted of the loving kindness of Jesus, there is something that becomes attractive about that cross. I made a statement a few days, a few couple of weeks ago. We were teaching in the foundations course and I spoke about the subject of repentance. And I said, you know, I, I love repentance. I love the topic of repentance. And Siobhan said to me, Michael, nobody loves repentance. Nobody. And I said, I've learned to love repentance. Because what repentance means is that I can acknowledge my sinfulness, my brokenness, my ignorance, my deception, and come out of it into the light. So when I look at that cross, I realize that that means pain and death for you and for me. When Jesus looked at the cross, what does it say? I think it's, uh, it's Hebrews. I think it's chapter 12. 
Hold on, let me get there. That's right. Am I right that it's 12? Yes, we're in 12. Hold on. Two. Thank you. Let's read from verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Every weight. Every opinion of man. Every expectation of everybody else. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. Folks, it's those things in our lives that we know God is not pleased with. Pastor Andreas has been talking about judging ourselves, 1 Corinthians 11. You know, when we look at that cross, we understand that that cross exists because of those things in our lives that God is not pleased with. Now's the time to deal with them. Not tomorrow. Now. Let us lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross is a picture of pain and suffering that leads to a hope of rich and vibrant life and joy. God wants to bring us into it. And the way we get there is through that cross. And so I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. You see, I told you this, that what I wanted to share with you today was familiar. It's things we've heard before. But as we remember them and as we begin to take stock and we look at our own hearts and lives, it's good for us to, to remember, to recommit, say, Jesus, I, I, I left my cross. Maybe I left it, my cross on... I, I have a set spot where I pick up my cross on the way to church so that I can walk in with it. And then when I get home again, I just go put it in the garage for the rest of the week. I don't know what you've done with your cross. Maybe I went to you, maybe you went to the cross once and you left it all there again and you thought that was it. And you didn't realize that the cross is a place we continually need to go to because we have a way of continually getting involved and sucked into things we shouldn't. We have a way of continually wanting our will and our way and to put that onto others. I want us to sing a song this morning called Restore My Soul. It's a prayer. It's a song of prayer. And where you are at, if you, I, I want, I, my, my hope is that you'll be able to sing this song from a heart that is sincere before Jesus. Just take, as it says, restore my soul, revive my heart, renew my life in every part. Reveal to me what sin remains and lead me to the cross again. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.